2, Agatha Christie, She Watched. This is Bill Peschel, and this week we'll be talking about cheating husbands, free-spirited artists, inheritance hopes, and inadequate men. We'll be talking about The Hollow, the 2004 adaptation starring David Suchet as Hercule Poirot. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage and crime of the fictional sort, Teresa Peschel. Teresa, how are you doing today? Hi, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be with you in your little office under the stairs and doing something that doesn't involve you getting out a red pencil and marking up my prose. Yes, we've been involved in editing each other's copy, or I have been. I've edited her two novels, the next uh, installments in the Steps of Mars series, and I'm also in editing her reviews for the upcoming book, Agatha Christie. She watched a collection of reviews she's been writing and we've been publishing for the last year been, and a half, two years, I ease, think. Easily. There were movies that we saw in 2020 that we were writing reviews about it was it's been a long time but yes we do have a complicated relationship but i get to edit bill too so it works out that's right i keep saying we review whereas she's the one actually doing the reviewing i'm the one that's doing the editing so let's get started with the hollow which we saw last night so what are your first impressions i thought they did a very good job i don't think it was quite to the caliber of Five Little Pigs or Sad Cypress, which were truly outstanding. This one wasn't quite as good, and I believe that that's because of the way they changed the ending. They softened the ending dramatically, which was really a surprise. Let's get started with the, with from the beginning, because The Hollow is the house. Yes, The Hollow is the name of the house that Lucy and Henry Ancatel live at. So this is another one of these closed room mysteries about a family that is turns out is going to be dysfunctional the angatel family they're well i wouldn't describe them as dysfunctional but they are absolutely desperate for for somebody to take over the estate there's actually uh and and this isn't really clear in the text but i know something about the way the english aristocracy arrange themselves There are actually two estates in question. There's the one that Henry owns with Lucy, and they are an older couple in their 60s, and they do not apparently have children. Certainly no children are mentioned at any point. So they don't come into the story, and so they're not mentioned. But that's one of those questions that I always have, where you should have a portrait on the wall and you give a single sentence to say, oh, our sons are both off serving in India or something like that. But there's also Ainswick. And Ainswick is the estate that Lucy grew up on. She is an Ancatel. This is where you get intermarriage between second cousins. But she was the only daughter, and so she could not inherit the estate. It was entailed. Henry is an Ancatel, but he was a more distant relationship than Edward, who is of a younger generation, which is why Edward inherited Ainswick. And Lucy, even though she has a beautiful home on lavish grounds with adoring servants and an adoring husband, her fixation still is on Ainswick, her childhood home. And one of the reasons why Lucy does what she does, and remember, we are a spoiler-heavy show, folks, one of the reasons why Lucy does what she does in trying to cover up who murdered John Christo is because with John Christo dead, then he can no longer continue the torrid affair with Henrietta, who is an Ancatel cousin. And then Edward, the inheritor of Ainswick, can finally get off of his, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe him, his inadequate perch, his diffidence, his retiring nature, his please don't look at me, folks, and do the right thing and marry Henrietta. And this way, Henrietta can't object 
project anymore because she's no longer chasing after John Christo, a married man. Instead, the two of them will do what they are supposed to do, which is get married and produce lots of children to ensure that Ainswick will always have an heir. And this is where, in the United States, it's kind of hard to under, to grasp this concept. But when you have spent a, a thousand years back to William the Conqueror, knowing who inherits the land, it matters very much to know that the family land is going to be held by a great, great, great grandson five generations hence. But in order to do that, you better be producing that nursery full of sons right now. Well, then there's that little scene between Sir Henry and Lucy where Lucy is expressing her concerns about the future of the estate. And Sir Henry says, is it really all that important? It's Ainswick. Mm-hmm. And you can see Sir Henry. I mean, he understands this. But at the same time, Ainswick to him does not matter to him. It's not Eden. It's not Nirvana. It's not Shangri-La, the, the home of his dreams. He has a perfectly lovely home with his lovely, charming wife. And they've done a lot of things. They've, that, they met Hercule Poirot in Baghdad when Henry was the high commissioner. So they know who Poirot is, and they've been around the world, and they've done exciting things. At one point, they're having a shooting scene where Sir Henry, he's a gun collector, and he is showing, he's showing Midge and Edward and Henrietta and Gerda and uh, John how to shoot the revolver. And they're all not doing a very good job of it. Or Lucy, remember, she is a 60-something woman. She takes the revolver, bang, 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 three shots right in the head of the Kaiser. And Sir Henry remembers a time when they had been set upon on the Asian side of the Bosphorus. Uh, thugs had set upon him and Lucy was off to the side, but she wasn't standing there like some screaming damsel. No, she took her revolver and shot one of the assailants in the stomach and the other in the leg. And he wondered why he, how he didn't get shot as well, but she's that good. She's that good. And she <laughs> said, well, you just go ahead and do it and don't think about it. That's kind of a clue as to what happens for the rest of the rest of the show, the rest of the novel. They do things without, but they know what they need to do. They know what they need to do. Lucy in particular knows what she needs to do in order to secure Ainswick and to make sure that there are no problems, that Edward marries properly and produces lots of children and with John Christo out of the way. And anyway, he's dead now, so who cares? The dead are dead. What mm-hmm. matters is the living. Which brings us to the Christos, John and Gerda. And John is a doctor. He's he's a brilliant, supposedly a brilliant doctor. He's doing lots of research on an important disease, but at the same time, he is a cheating horn dog. He is a control freak. He's very attractive to women. It is mentioned both in the text and in the novel that he's had a string of affairs, none of which his wife knows about. He is carrying on a torrid affair with Henrietta, the sculptress, and because Henrietta only has eyes for John, she's not marrying Edward like. Lucy wants her to in order to secure Ainswick. So with John out of the way, well, things should take their natural course, but it turns out rather differently, but she's okay with it because it works out. So there's John Christo, and he is a dramatic character. One of the things that the movie had to gloss over, and for some mysterious reason, they changed the timeline from 15 years to 12, and there was no reason for that at all. I cannot understand that. But anyway, he is having a crisis of conscience, and we, we kind of see a little tiny glimpse of that. He's tired. He is ambivalent about what he's going to do next. This is after having seen him cheating with Henrietta, the sculptress. And this is where in the novel he's thinking about Veronica Cray again. And Veronica was a woman he, he had been madly in love with 15 years before. She was an actress, stunning platinum blonde. And she wanted him to give up medicine and give up his career and go off to California where she was going 
going to be a superstar actress and he was going to be Mr. Cray holding her coat at the stage door. Well, he wasn't going for that. And he broke it off, but he was never able to get her out of his mind. And that's why when she shows up at the house party draped in platinum fox to match her platinum hair, he says, oh, hi, don't you look hot? I have unfinished business with you. And so if you were wondering when watching the movie why he panted after her, not just because we already know that he's a cheating horn dog, but that's why, because he could never get her out of his head. She still occupied space. Mm-hmm. And after that, you can see that it's clearly set up that he is going off to spend quality time with Ms. Cray. Right. It should be mentioned she comes over to borrow matches because, of course, she's living next to Poirot's cottage. Poirot's deciding to go out to the to the country and try to see if he could make a living out there. Or to, ha- to have a weekend cottage to get right. away from the noise and dirt of the city on occasion. And he's trying it. And you can see this is not going to be terribly successful. Right. He was talked into it. That's all you <laughs> for, can say. For plot reasons. For plot reasons, he was talked into it. We'll just roll it. on with that. <laughs> But Veronica shows up at night. She literally walks through the French doors while the family, they're resting in the living room, yeah, playing, playing cards, cards and all that. They're playing cards. They're she, reading the newspaper. They're doing their tatting, whatever you know, it is that they're doing. And she's just sitting at home. She wants to smoke. You know, she has her white fox stole on and her, and her and, evening gown and her evening gown and perfectly made up as one does at night <laughs> in the country. And she walks down the lane half a mile away to the hollow. That's the name of the house, by the way, folks. And all of these people are hollow inside one way or another. So the hollow is actually a very good name. But she walks over there, shows up at the French door and in, and opens the door and lets herself in and says, hi, I need to borrow matches from my closest neighbors, even though Poirot lives, lives right next door. But Which, she is not going to talk to some furriner. And as it turns out later on, you find out that Veronica Cray, she never forgot John Christo either. He was the one who got away. And she bought that wretched cottage in that awful countryside because it was right next to the hollow where she knew she had found out that John Christo went regularly for country weekends. And so she bought the house so that she could be there when he showed up and as soon as she found out that he had showed up remember servants always gossip and you've got a network of servants who talk to each other so probably her maid told her or somebody told her that oh the christos are coming down and so she was ready with her evening gown and her fox cape and her heavy duty makeup to show up and beg prettily to borrow matches and And she she spots john and goes oh john what are you doing here oh God, what a great scene. Oh, it was a great scene. It was a great scene. Lucy Ancatel, that's Sarah Miles, by the way. Uh, Lucy Ancatel, after John and Veronica leave, says something to the effect of, we really should see her movies, Henry. Look what a wonderful performance she just put on for us. She knew it was fake. She knew every minute of that was a staged performance, including the, oh, John, I 
didn't expect to see you. The pretty gesture and the fluttering hands, exactly what you would see in a Hollywood melodrama. Right. So she asks John to walk her back to her house. And which he does. Which he does with one last look at his wife. He gives her this look and you can see, and, and again, you don't quite get the setup in the film that you do in the novel because in the novel you're in his head and you're seeing how he's thinking about her and he could never get her out of his head and he's, she's, she's, he's thinking about her again. But in the film, all you get is that glance from him of, oh, my God, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And so he goes off with Veronica and every single person in the room knows what it is that he's going to be doing. If he's not back in half an hour, because it does not take that long to walk a lady, even in high heels, down a dark country lane back to her cottage, it does not take that long to walk her through the dark and come back. Everybody except Gerda. She still doesn't doesn't suspect anything, although she doesn't like the situation. She does not like the situation, and she knows who Veronica Cray is. She knows that John was madly in love with Veronica, but she thought John was over that. But seeing his face, she's sitting there. She's not happy. She is very unhappy about this. But she doesn't know what to do, and of course she completely trusts John because John would never, ever, 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 ever do anything that was not noble and good and manly and just absolutely the most wonderful husband any girl could possibly have, and she's the luckiest girl in the world, and she adores him. And at the same time, she also has quite a lot in the way of of a lack of self-confidence. Yes, she's slow. She doesn't think quickly. She's outclassed mentally by everyone in that room. And she's easily flustered. Very easily flustered. She's nervous and anxious. She's always afraid she's doing something wrong, something that many of us can really understand. She's a very fully realized character. And one of the things you have to understand about the novel is that the murder of John Christo doesn't take place until almost halfway through. It's Remember, the murder is really not the opening act there's a whole lot of lead up that involves someone getting murdered because very few of us just suddenly decide unless we're crazy that, oh, I need to shoot my husband. Most of the time when we shoot our husband. Why are you looking at me like that? (laughs) I'm just getting into character, dear. But (laughs) when we shoot our husband or we poison our wife, it's usually the culmination of a long, long process it doesn't just happen when does poro get introduced in the novel he comes over i think it's the next day he was invited to can't remember if he was there for dinner but he's in the country and the Ancatels know that he's living down the road from him and they have had him over to the house because they remember him from baghdad the scene where he is walking to the pool pavilion and he is he doesn't particularly want to do this he knows who they are but he doesn't particularly want to do this because he feels like he's going to be asked to perform like a performing monkey and he's going to do some stupid murder game and he sees the stagey setup around the pool of the woman holding the gun and other people staring in horror at her and the body on the edge of the pool and his first thought is really you're going to make me perform like a trained monkey but he, this appla- is he applauds them, though. That's the funny part of it. He, he's going, oh, this is wonderfully set up. He's being the polite Poirot. Yeah, he's being a polite Poirot. So he goes up and he applauds and he's being very, very positive because he is going to perform because he is a gentleman. And then he realizes it's not fake. Mm-hmm. It's real. There really is a man lying dead on the edge of the pool, blood dripping over the side and into the dirty water. And that was something that did surprise me because I would have thought that the Ancatels, despite all of the issues with staffing, would have had somebody scoop the leaves out of the pool on a daily basis but 
Yeah. How do I know? But at that moment, John wasn't quite dead yet because John, yeah, John he had just enough to, for the last words. Henrietta, not his wife's name. Henrietta, the sculptress. Gerda is standing there looking shocked. And then Henrietta hears John speak to her. And then she takes the gun from Gerda's hand. And then, oh, my God, she fumbles and drops it into the pool. Now, with modern forensics, I think that you might still be able to get the fingerprints off the gun after it's been in a dirty chlorinated. uh, Well, there may not have been enough chlorine in that pool because it looked kind of murky, but you can get the fingerprints from something that's been in the water, especially if it hasn't been in the water long. But when the novel was written right after the end of World War II or when this film is set in the late 30s, I don't think you could have. So the evidence is ruined. Yep. But they play it that way. And and then and they play it that way. And oh my God, Henrietta, she drops the gun in the pool. Mm-hmm. And as she explains later, I just wanted to make sure that Gerda, Gerda can be clumsy and she gets anxious and I was afraid she would shoot someone. I'm sure that what happened is that Gerda came out and saw John laying there dead, you know, laying there dying. And she picked up the gun like anybody would. <laughs> and and I was run to af- your husband and say, John, John, what has happened? What are you doing? And trying to to at least staunch the blood. But this exactly. is a, this is a common trope. This is a very common trope in mystery novels. Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it is. She's frozen with shock, and so she picks up. Yes, she picks up the gun instead of rushing to her dying husband. And Henrietta takes the gun and takes the gun for her for a perfectly valid reason, folks. And then. Oh, she drops it in the pool. And and then we move off from there as Poirot starts. He meets Inspector Grange, who, again, the novel, the, the film didn't do a good job of this, but the novel really does a good job of demonstrating the class differences between the Ancatels and Inspector Grange. He has to be polite to these people because they're important. And anybody who thinks there are no classes in the United States, well, that's not true. It just depends on how much money you have and what kind of influence you have. And yes, the, the local policeman has to be polite to the most important family in the district, even though he knows they're all guilty or they're all colluding or they're all doing something. They're definitely not being honest and straightforward. And he keeps getting these bizarre stories. Uh, Lucy Ancatel, why do you carry a pistol with you when you go to the farm to get eggs? Oh, I just do. You know, there's Gudgeon the butler. Why were you carrying a revolver across the hallway and you didn't think to mention this to me? Well, it was on the table. Oh, and there won't be any fingerprints because, of course, I had to polish it before I put it back into its place. In that scene, you also do see something that class divide as well, because when Gudgeon the butler is standing before the police officer in Poirot and Sir Henry. Sir Henry is at his desk. The inspector is behind him. And Sir Henry is the one, because he's the magistrate for the area, which means he actually does have some authority here. He's the one questioning the butler, not the inspector. I didn't catch that. What I did notice was that Inspector Grange does not get to dismiss Gudgeon. That was Miss. That was Lady Ancatel. That was Lucy who got to dismiss him. And there's also, this wasn't brought out again in the novel, and it wasn't brought out in the film either. And this is is where you put your fan fiction writer hat on. But as it turns out, 
two guns were stolen from Sir Henry's gun collection. Well, you would think that the minute Sir Henry, as a responsible, upstanding citizen and the magistrate of the district, as soon as he discovered that one gun was missing, would he take a quick inventory of his other guns and see, oh God, the revolver is missing with its holster. Where is this? But he does not apparently do this. And if he does, he doesn't say anything about it to Inspector Grange. And this is an example of the Ancatel family circling the wagons. They all know who did it. But they also all know that Gerda is not very smart. She is not smart. She tends to be slow. She is clever enough, but not clever enough. She's copying what she read in the detective novel she was trying to read while John was off with that blonde hussy. But Sir Henry doesn't say anything about another gun being missing from his collection. And you would think that he would have done immediately an inventory, but he doesn't. There's also the story behind Midge and Edward. Now, from what I understand, this has been truncated for the for the movie. Is that correct? Oh, vastly truncated. Vastly truncated. Midge I really liked. I would have liked to have seen more of Midge. We meet her at the very beginning of the novel. She is having a joyful, happy weekend at Lucy and Henry Ancatel's. She is a poor relation. A cousin? She is uh, a cousin. She is an Ancatel cousin. Her mother was an Ancatel marrying a normal person. And she grew up in not, not desperate straits, but they weren't wealthy. And her mother died. And then her father just started fading. And his business was failing, mainly because the times were changing. And what he was selling, let's call it buggy whips, weren't selling the way they had been in the past. And Midge works for her living in a fancy ladies' dress shop for Madame Alfridge. And it is an awful job and she hates it but Midge has to support herself somehow and when she can come to the hollow or she can go to Ainswick she is so happy it's like stepping into a little slice of paradise it's a little slice of heaven and all she can think about is I want to come back Edward is the other Ancatel and he is the one who actually inherited Ainswick and he is quiet, retiring, shy man, rather diffident. John Christo, in contrast, makes him feel even more inadequate and more of a failure than he already is. He inherited Ainswick purely as a matter of luck. He's never married because Midge and Henrietta, and I guess Gerda too, would come out to Ainswick for every holiday, for summers, and whenever possible. They grew up together. He's always been madly in love with Henrietta. Midge was little Midge, and he didn't even think of her as being, certainly not as a woman, but she was, you know, the cousin. She was the cousin, and she showed up, and because he's madly in love with Henrietta, he's not going to marry like he should and provide an heir to see to the to see to the continuity of keeping Ainswick in the family. They have a long story dispensed with in one sentence of dialogue where Midge says to Lucy, oh, we're getting we're engaged. We're going to be married. Edward swooped down to the city and rescued me from Madame Alfridge and the awful dress shop and the awful customers who treated me like dirt. And there was a lot involved in there, including Midge looking at Edward. Edward, when he says something remarkably stupid about, well, why are you working at a job like that? You should work at a job that pays well and treats you well and that you love. And Midge thinking, you know nothing, do you? You are an idiot. (laughs) Which he is. He's never had to think about this. 
Mm-hmm. He's never had to think about this. And then later on, and you see nothing of this. You don't see anything of Edward's angst or Midge's grief and angst. This is a very emotional book where she ends up after agreeing to marry Edward, which is what she really wants. She's always loved him. But then she breaks off the engagement because she sees him speaking with Henrietta and she realizes that he really wants to be with her. And now that John Christo is dead, he can marry Henrietta. Except that what she doesn't know, because none of these people have any communication skills, what she doesn't know is that Edward has come to the realization that it is Midge he wants. And then Midge tells him, no, I can't do this. But she doesn't say, because I know you really want to be with Henrietta. So Edward goes down in the middle of the night and puts his head in the gas oven and luckily she wakes up and hears him and saves him and then they have this long heartfelt reunion where they realize they need to improve their communication skills and all of that is gone but it also is referred to at the very end when Henrietta is making the sculpture of grief which is the only way she can mourn because she is a hollow woman that Midge will be happy and she will not have that kind of human warmth and love and companionship and happiness so all of that disappeared does it have that scene in the book that we saw by the pool between edward and henrietta where edward is approaching her after john is killed and thinking oh i can i can i can have her now and she looks at him henrietta just cuts him to ribbons uh something like that i'm i'm trying to remember it's been a couple of weeks since i've read it but yes something like that henrietta tells him no again but he finally she finally gets under his skin enough so that he hears her he hears Hears her because she calls him inadequate. Yes, I think it was worded a little bit differently, but this was a, a better way of handling it. I think this the film did a beautiful job of handling that, just like the film did a beautiful job of explaining why Gerda does leatherwork when she shows off this patchwork leather handbag. handbag that is even from even the audience can tell is clumsily sewn, clumsily arranged and clumsily sewn. And Henrietta, because she is a very kind woman, finds something positive to say about it. And there was no mention of her doing leather work in other than, oh, I do leather work. But this was an example. And I think the film did a really good job of that. Well, it becomes a very important plot point as well, because in disposing of the holster, she has to cut up all the leather pieces and puts it in the bag with all her other leather work. Yes. And this was very clumsily done because she would not just cut. Well, maybe Gerda. In the movie, it's clumsily. In in the movie, it's clumsily done because they just cut the holster in half and you can see the two pieces. She didn't even take the stitching out and she would have ripped the stitching out and cut it in half and if you take out the stitching and you cut it in half suddenly you have two oddly shaped pieces of leather but if you're working with scrap leather you get a lot of oddly shaped pieces because animals don't come in neat rectangles (laughs) (laughs) they don't (laughs) no they don't i have done a little bit of leather working but uh leather soles on the bottoms of slippers or things like that and animals and i've seen leather skins for sale at the pennsylvania fabric outlet animal skins do not come in neat rectangles they have all of these odd pointy bits that stick out all over so if you've got a bag full of leather scraps you'll have different color scraps there'll be different pieces of leather different thicknesses different grades because you're not working with the whole skins as an amateur you're just buying the bits and 
If she cut the holster in half and ripped out the stitching, then it wouldn't be noticeable. Right. But according to the film, she just cut the holster in half. So that's pretty heavy cutting for starters, because of course she would rip out the stitching first before you cut it in half. But it allowed the inspector to completely miss the obvious and then Poirot to push the two pieces together. And you see, oh, that's a holster. And nobody would have missed that. Right. Nobody would have missed that. Right. And in the end, as we find out, Gerda actually did shoot John. Unlike in the book, she goes off to the surgeon next in the next room and kills herself with cyanide, potassium cyanide. Potassium cyanide, she injects it. This was a very weak ending. Yeah. I think the ending really, the movie was so wonderful up to that point and the ending just really, they, they, they missed their landing completely. In the novel, and this is what they should have done, Lucy wakes up and she this is after she discovers uh, the whole thing with Midge and Edward down in the kitchen. But Lucy suddenly realizes something that's been bothering her. And remember, Lucy and Henrietta and the entire family, they've been doing something that we've never seen in a Christie novel before. They all know Gerda did it, and they're all trying to cover it up because they don't actually see a problem with Gerda shooting her husband. It's more important that they protect Gerda because she is an Ancatel. It's like a flip side of Orient Express. Instead of all of them killing, one of them does and the rest cover it up. Exactly. So Lucy suddenly wakes up and realizes what happened to the holster. And she wakes up Henrietta and says, what happened to the holster? And Henrietta is jolted awake and realizes what happened to the holster. Oh, and there's also uh, what Henrietta did with the gun, and they they messed that up too. That was stupid. Henrietta, um, do you want to do what Henrietta did with the gun, or do you want to do Henrietta what Henrietta We're racing to on the London? gun? So let's let's go ahead with the gun, I guess, and then do the holster. Okay. So Henrietta realized as soon as the ballistics report came through, because Sir Henry must have told her that, or it occurred to her, one of the two, or maybe Sir Henry told her two guns are missing. Because remember, we never find that out. We never find out if Sir Henry did an inventory. But it's perfectly plausible that Sir Henry said two guns are missing. Henrietta knew what Gerda would do. And John, in his dying word, Henrietta, she knew what he wanted her to do. He wanted her to protect Gerda. So she found the gun, as she tells Poirot later on, she found the gun, the second gun, the gun that actually shot John Christo. She found it exactly where Gerda would have tossed it, and she says that she got there about two minutes before the police did. She smuggles the gun to London, and then she has to hide it somehow. She smuggles the gun to London. Well, Midge is upstairs starting to get tea things together. She runs downstairs to buy matches from the old blind match man and she gives him the handgun he's blind remember and he feels it all over as he's fumbling with it she asks him to hold it while she gets out money and i guess he doesn't recognize he's holding a revolver but anyway he holds it and putting his fingerprints on it putting the fingerprints of a completely anonymous person she brings the gun back upstairs and then she hides it inside of a sculpture of a horse and then she brings the horse sculpture back to the hollows for the inquest because she's a sculptress and this is the sculpture that she's working on and the gun the handgun is hidden inside and then the handgun appears as Poirot says I'm sure the second gun will turn up sooner or later he knows that he's being led down the primrose path he knows it he just hasn't figured out the particulars and sure enough the handgun that shot John Christo appears tucked into 
his hedge in front of his cottage. And then it is discovered to have completely anonymous fingerprints on it. Now, all this is in the book itself. All of this is in the novel. show up here. Yeah, none of this shows up here. Instead, you have Inspector Grange and Poirot breaking into Henrietta's studio, apparently without a search warrant, and then damaging her sculptor by, by breaking into the horse. In the film, he tells Henrietta that he knew it was the horse because she had said she didn't like horses. Which I thought was weak. I thought that was very weak. In the novel, he said, you are an artist, and I believe your subconscious helped you shape a horse because it was a Trojan horse smuggling something in that could not be seen. And I thought that was so much better. Because so, it, so it much betrays better. her. Her behavior betrays her, and Poirot is all about the psychological clues. Exactly. That was much weaker. It would have been much, much better to find the gun in his hedge outside of his house, because then you know that none of the Ancatels could possibly have been involved. And as he tells, I think it's Henrietta or Inspector Grange, if you're going to assign blame to divert attention from the murderer, you do not want to pick a specific person, because then that can be proved or disproved. Instead, what you need to do spread the blame around as widely as possible to conceal what is real. So this is where the ending fell down. First off, you have the problem with the Trojan horse or lack thereof. And then you have the problem with the ending. Lucy tells Henrietta, she wakes her up at six in the morning, what happened to the holster. Henrietta panics. I have to get the holster. Gerda has the holster. She rushes to where Gerda is staying. Poirot is already paying attention and he gets a fast car and he be, and he arrives a few minutes later. So Henrietta rushes to Gerda. Gerda is in her friend's house alone. Her friend took the children out to a park, but she wasn't feeling well, so she didn't go along and she's home alone. Henrietta rushes in and says, what did you do with the holster? What? The holster. We know you have it. No one's found it. What happened to the holster? You're in the clear. Nobody will ever suspect a thing. We're making sure that no one will ever suspect you, Gerda. What happened to the holster? And again, this wasn't spelled out in the text. But I have to wonder, because we have a lovely heart-rending scene with Gerda, as she's saying, John is dead. What am I going to do without John? I can't live without John. John did everything. She looks at Henrietta, who was there to save her, and of course she was there at John's death when he said, not her name, but Henrietta. You have to wonder if she doesn't look at Henrietta and think, you whore. You whored yourself with my husband like that, that blonde hussy actress. Because Gerda then goes into the next room to make tea, and she brings back tea, and while she is making the tea, Hercule Poirot arrives. He rearranges the teacups a little bit. Gerda drinks the tea and falls over dead of uh, cyanide poisoning. We'll call it cyanide. It's not described. Henrietta is shocked. She's horrified. She meant to poison me? You knew that? And Poirot says, I didn't know. I suspected, but I didn't know. But why would Gerda do that? And Henrietta's all confused, and Poirot explains to her, have you ever seen a dog in a trap? Even when the dog's master is coming to rescue the dog, the dog is frightened and in pain, and he will snap at his master, rather than sit quietly, because he's a, he's, he's a frightened animal in pain. She was frightened. She stopped thinking about what you needed. She wasn't thinking about you. She was thinking about safety. You knew the only way she could be safe was to kill you. And she wasn't thinking. She wasn't thinking about you at all or the fact that the Ancatels were rescuing her from uh, making sure that nobody suspected a thing or that they couldn't prove a thing. She wasn't doing that at all. She was thinking about her safety. 
that would have been so much better than having Gerda walk off and then shoot herself up with some potassium cyanide out of sight because it was much more in character. And we also get that scene, but we do get the scene with Gerda telling Henrietta, I trusted John. I believed in John. John was everything that was noble and good and wonderful, and I adored John. And then I saw his face when Veronica Cray came to the door and he went off with her and he didn't come back and he didn't come back and he didn't come back. And finally I went out and I saw them. I heard them and I saw them in the pool pavilion room. And there's John banging Veronica right up against the wall. And they're obviously having a tremendously good time. And he probably doesn't do that with her. (laughs) We criticized the ending, but for most of it, it was really good. It was really good. This is one of those Poirot episodes that I really think it should have been about 10 or 15 minutes longer because you could have gotten more of Ed, Edward and Midge and you could have gotten more of Lucy Ancatel and her machinations to make sure that Poirot didn't know what was going on. We did get at least one scene with them where she's asking him, if I tell you the truth, will you make the case go away? And she thinks she should be able to do it. She thinks that she should be able to get what she wanted. You know, similarly with scenes with Gudgeon doing anything possible to protect Lady Lucy. I would have liked to see more of Midge and Edward. I would have liked to have seen the gun handled correctly, the second gun. I would have liked to have seen the climax handled the way it was in the novel. But it was really good. And I know that Agatha has stated publicly, she stated publicly in her autobiography, that she thought introducing Poirot into the novel ruined the novel. But I didn't feel that way. I recognize that him getting a country cottage was a plot device to put him on the spot. I recognize that. Worked in the novel. They integrated him beautifully. I really enjoyed it. And sometimes authors don't know what's best for their own work. No, sometimes they don't. We've come to the end of another show. And next time we're going to be looking at the mystery of the blue train. We're going to look at an early Agatha Christie novel. The one that made her a professional writer because she wrote this after the 11-day disappearance and in the throes of the divorce. And her life was over and it was ruined and she still had to produce a book. And this is the book that she said made her know she was a professional. And every time that somebody said, I love the mystery of the blue train, she thought a little less of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid so. Thanks for joining us, folks. And we'll see you next time. Agatha Christie, She Watched, is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel, produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.